0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. All right, so let me set the context for us a little bit here, right? Because last week we were in John, and now we, we're in Mark. Um, and Mark, for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, is just another account of Jesus' life. So, right, that's why it's called the Gospel According to Mark. So Mark has a unique set of eyes, a, uni- a unique way of looking at the life of Uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, and this is really the beginning of that book, right? And so what we see, and really what has been probably similar in all of the Gospels that we have kind of toured over the past couple of weeks, is that it begins with this man, John the Baptist. This man, John the Baptist, we see in verse 2, it says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then it tells us later on that this man, John, was that man preparing the way for the Lord. A voice crying in the wilderness. And in verse 7 it says this. That John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with with the Holy Spirit and what we see shortly thereafter is that Jesus actually meets John like they run into each other and John looks at him and he says this this is him this is the one who I have come to prepare the way for and Jesus comes to this John and he says I need to be baptized and John's like well well, wait a minute no I I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you and yet what we see at that moment is that God himself looks upon Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized. And at that moment sort of begins his, his ministry, right? And the, really the first thing that even takes place before that is that he is led out to the desert and he is tempted um, for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then this is where we arrive now in verse 14 after all of that has taken place. Right? So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The three years that would go on to shape a region, then an empire, then a continent, and then a world. So surely, surely this is a climactic and important moment. Let's read verses 14 and 15. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes to Galilee. And of all the miracles that, we're, that we hear tell of. In, in the four different gospel accounts. You would think. Right. That this would be a good moment to start with a bang. Right. I mean. So we, we read throughout the gospels. That he changes water to wine. That he brings the dead back to life. Literally. That he heals sick people. That he cleanses people of their leprosy. Right. You would think that. That now at the beginning would be a moment in which to kind of like show off. And yet, Jesus instead comes proclaiming an outwardly simple but inwardly revolutionary message. A message that I think uh, we should probably dig into a little bit. And so let's just look very closely at these, these verses. I'm just going to take verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So Jesus comes into Galilee and he does what? He proclaims what? Not just anything, but the gospel of God. So the first thing, the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry is not a gospel deed, but it is a gospel proclamation. Jesus, God in the flesh, both recognizes and here reveals that God's kingdom is first and foremost extended by the proclamation of God's gospel. And then this next verse, this is the summary of Jesus' entire preaching ministry that that if you were to not read any of the other gospels, which I I don't recommend, you you should do that, Um, but if you were not going to do so, this is the summary of of his entire preaching ministry in which he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And when he says the time is fulfilled, he's not talking about a mere chronology, he's talking about a significant time, a favorable time, an opportune time, in fact a time that had been planned beforehand, that it is here, that it is fulfilled, that it is now. And then he goes on to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this is an interesting interesting choice of words, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. And what we, what we will later understand after reading more of the Bible is that what, God is, or what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is here because its king is here, but this is only the inception. That the fulfillment of God's kingdom will happen upon his return, his second advent. And so he uses this word of the kingdom being at hand and then he says repent and believe in the gospel. That there is in this moment in order to follow Jesus a necessary turning. Right? That's what repent means. It essentially means making a 180 to turn from one thing and and go in the complete opposite direction towards a holy and entirely different thing. So the coming of God's kingdom necessitates that the people who would desire to follow God would actually turn and do so, would repent and believe in the gospel of God. And while the hearers at this time uh, don't necessarily have the fullness of the gospel laid out for him, they, they have yet to see Jesus mocked, beaten, stripped, crucified, buried, and then risen again. The fact of the matter is that what Jesus is calling his followers to do is to repent and believe in this gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus, who is the king of this kingdom. So this was Jesus's ministry, right? This is significant in terms of the order uh, that this is written in, in terms of the order that Jesus conducts his ministry. That he would begin with a simple word. That of all of the gospel nuances that you and I now sit underneath, as we as we come every Sunday and hope for a new word, a, a, a new insight, some new wisdom, that, that of all of those things, that Jesus comes and in his first word, in his first ministry deed, he proclaims the good news of the gospel. That's significant. And it has an, an entirely relevant um, meaning for us, for those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus this morning. So let's continue uh, with the story. What happens next and how is it connected? Verse 16 says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So Jesus sees Simon, Simon who will later be known as Peter, and Andrew, two fishermen, and he says something that, that really, at first outset, sounds pretty weird. One, follow me. Okay, you're poor, you're a carpenter, and why? And then two, I will make you become fishers of men. I don't... Like, I can't begin to see how that would uh, be compelling in any way, shape, or form, at least for me. But he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Now what Jesus is saying here, as as with most of the things that, that Jesus says, it is filled with reference, it is filled with depth, it is filled with gravity, what he is saying here. And so if you know your Bibles really well, uh, incredibly well actually, <laughs> This phrase has massive significance. I'm going to read for a moment from uh, the book of Jeremiah, which is a, a book in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a prophetic book, right? So this man, Jeremiah, has been chosen by God to speak on God's behalf to his people, the people Israel. And this is what um, the Lord says to Jeremiah uh, in chapter 16. Therefore, right, so this is the Lord speaking, therefore, behold. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. This is where it gets significant. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Now, That probably sounds all kinds of weird. Um, So just relax. We'll get there. Um, What's taking place here is that um, really the, the Old Testament, right, all the books that were written before Jesus came, those are all just a testament to the faithlessness of God's people, right? So what we see all throughout the Old Testament is that God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And the people sort of stubbornly say, no, we won't. And time and time again, they, they disobey, they walk in willful disobedience to this God who for century upon century had provided for their every single need. Time and time again. And of course, I think if, if any of us have a beating pulse this morning, we could see how that would be frustrating for someone. And so the Lord responds to this and he says I am sending out fishers I am sending out hunters but he is sending out these fishers these hunters to bring people to justice to bring people to judgment because the law and the old testament demanded an allegiance that the people of that day not only did not but arguably could not provide so God was going to send out fishers of men to bring people to judgment So, if that's what takes place in Jeremiah, why is this significant and why is it that Jesus is referencing it now in the book of Mark? In his his first appeal to his disciples to come and to follow him. Why? Well, let's just go back really quick. Jesus says to them, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And here's the good news of the gospel. In the Old Testament, that demanded an allegiance that we couldn't provide has now been eradicated, or not eradicated, but has rather been fulfilled in Christ in such a way that now when Jesus makes fishers of men, he brings them to grace and redemption rather than to judgment. That in the New Covenant, Jesus sends out fishers of men to bring people, to reconcile them into his kingdom because Jesus' allegiance to the law and his perfect fulfilling of it is now provided to those whom he would catch in the net of his gospel. You see, men and women are no longer caught to be repaid for their sins, as in Jeremiah, but they are now caught to be given the grace and the reconciliation that has been made available now in the person and the work of Jesus. And this is marvelous good news that Jesus proclaims to his followers So what takes place next Simon and Andrew they respond in verse 18 and it says this and immediately they left their nets and they followed him Immediately they left their nets And they followed him. So Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand to repent, to believe the gospel. And he comes and he entreats these two men to do so. And immediately they drop their nets. they literally in the middle of what they are doing and they follow him. Brothers and sisters, those of us in the room this morning that would claim the name of Christ for salvation, this is our call to follow Jesus as fishers of men, in the proclamation of the gospel. That first and foremost, that that, that the primary essence of our ministry, if we would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, is to, as Jesus did, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God being at hand. So this is where we get to what this means for us. You ask, okay, we're we're reading through a narrative here. How does that have anything to do with me? Brothers and sisters, if we want to follow Jesus, then our, our first and foremost act of obedience and repentance to Jesus is to proclaim the gospel. And we talked last week a lot about this idea of telling people about Jesus, of evangelizing, right? This is just another way in which we are essentially backing up what we said last week. But what I want to do this week, I think, is nuance it a little bit more for us. Where last week, I wanted to address our fears about telling people about Jesus. I want us now to look at Jesus himself telling people about himself. So here's the thing. I'm going to read a brief verse from, well, it's not really brief. I lied. Um, But I am going to read from Romans chapter 10. and, And what I want us to do. What I want us to do here is, again, just see. See the the, the primacy of the, the, the proclaiming, the speaking, right? The verbal speaking of God's truth and its effect. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news, right? Let's read the next couple of verses, because this is, this is for us. There, there's really not much of us involved in that first portion the lord saves us but verse 14 it says how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here's, here's what Romans is describing for us. It's showing us how, how people come to faith. It's showing us how people come to faith. And, and for whatever reason, again, I don't know why the Lord chose to do it this way because I know that I, I often feel inadequate um, and inadequate sometimes even unwilling to do this. And yet the the process by which people come to believe in this great justification that Jesus provides that we read about in verses 9-13 through is when people have heard of this good news. And they're not going to hear about it unless someone is preaching. And we're not going to preach unless we understand that we've been sent by Jesus as Jesus was sent by God. To do what? To preach the good news. So here's the thing. There's a lot of debate in the church, right? About whether or not we should be foremost, first and foremost, committed to the gospel deed, right? So doing acts of good acts on behalf or in the name of Jesus, or whether we should proclaim the gospel of Jesus, whether it's just all about preaching, right? And and because we are polar people, because we like black and white, we pick one or the other right? And so there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of tension as to which one is sort of higher value, which one is most effective, right? And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that if you have to pick one, it would be the proclamation of the gospel, because here's what happens. When we proclaim the gospel, the gospel changes people's hearts, which then leads to people doing gospel deeds, And so that is putting the cart before the horse. When we want to just do gospel deeds and never, ever mention the name of Jesus, mention the fact that there is a Savior who has come on behalf of all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, and who has made payment for our debt, then it is an empty deed. And brothers and sisters, this is why. This is why we can look around and we can say that we know people who are quote unquote better or who do more, who are more philanthropic, who are more concerned with justice. But here's the thing, when those things are divorced from the gospel, again, the power of the gospel is removed from them, and they do not affect that which they should affect, which is the saving work of Christ upon those who would not believe. And so what I'm saying to us this morning is not that we shouldn't be about justice, is not that we shouldn't defend the cause of the fatherless, is not that we should not care for the widow, and plead the cause of the orphan. But what I'm saying is that if we do it apart from proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus, then we will accomplish relatively little in terms of the kingdom of God, which is now at hand. We should both preach the gospel and defend the fatherless. But it's the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel that is the indispensable cog. It is the foundation, the bedrock from which gospel deeds flourish and are effective for the saving work of the kingdom. That's why Jesus starts with proclamation. So following Jesus has many implications, but proclaiming the gospel is first and foremost in being a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a little bit weighty um, because I recognize that often I I, I fail in this area, that often I consider my comfort more valuable than the eternal weight of someone's soul being bound up in whether or not I am faithful in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And so before we conclude, I, I do want to acknowledge that that there's a weight to this ministry, that often this ministry is costly, that those fears that we talked about last week are real fears, that they are really troubling and that they really do cause emotional distress. And yet, those things do not negate the call that the Lord Jesus would place upon our lives to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let's read Mark um, Chapter 1, those last two verses, um, 19 and 20, says this. So immediately after Simon and Andrew dropped their nets, followed Jesus, it says this. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. And so following Jesus' costs... Whether it costs you your livelihood, like Simon, and like Andrew. Or whether it costs you your family and your your small business, like James and John, sons of Zebedee. For some of us this morning, following Jesus has cost us. Your families have ridiculed you or ostracized you. Your your following Jesus has led you far away from the people you love. Your jobs have been expendable. I want you to know this morning that Jesus not only sees that, but he honors it and rewards it. That yours is the kingdom of heaven, specifically this morning for those who have family ties that have been lost or strained by following Jesus. I want you to know that we are here and that we want to be your family because our shared gospel heritage runs deeper than any blood. Because what Christ has affected upon our behalf is deeper than any relational tie, than any last name that we could possibly share. And so if following Jesus this morning has cost you, you feel the weight of this and you're scared of moving forward, know that there is comfort in that truth. Now, here's what, Here's what I want us to do. I, I want us to sort of before, again, before we conclude, is just be confronted with Jesus' own humanity. Because I think oftentimes, again, we, we look at Jesus and, and with, with a, a certain amount of reverence, which is, which is very good, okay, and that, that should continue. And yet at the same time, that in some ways negates for us his humanity, that, that we begin to think that maybe he's not empathetic or that maybe he, he doesn't really understand what you and I walked through, that he doesn't really understand what he's asking us to do when he asks us to follow him at great cost. And yet, I think that there is a, a, a great portion of scripture that I'm going to read for us that that would adjust that understanding for us. That that thinking that that maybe because Jesus was God, it was somehow easier for him. That maybe because Jesus was God, that somehow all of his earthly ministry was nothing but fruitful. I'm going to read from Matthew 23. And just a couple of verses this time. So, um, 37 says this. And this is Jesus. He's speaking and he's looking out over the city of Jerusalem. He's, he's, looking, up, uh, he's looking down upon them from this, this mountaintop and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a tender, tender moment in which Jesus experiences rejection for the good news of the gospel. Where he looks out over his city, those whom he loves, those whom he would call brother and sister, those who Whose nation he belongs to. And he says, how I have longed to draw you underneath my wing as a hen draws her chicks. How I've longed to care for you. How I've longed to love you. And, and yet you would not have me. And brothers and sisters, how many times is that the fear for us when we think about telling other people about Jesus. When we think about proclaiming the good news of the gospel. I'll be rejected. I'll be despised by men. Well, Jesus here experiences rejection. Jesus experiences, quote-unquote, unfruitful ministry in worldly terms. Jesus' followers abandoned him. Jesus experienced derision and shame for his message. And yet he went boldly in confidence that his labor was not futile. And we can rest knowing that we have an empathetic high priest who knows the travails, the trials, and troubles of proclaiming the gospel to an unwilling generation. We can plead before him, knowing that he understands, knowing that he walked this road before us, the road of proclaiming the gospel. And here's the, the comfort in all of it, I think. When we go back to um, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, I think, holds not only the, the sort of the, the scary part, but it also holds the comforting part in the language that Jesus uses. He says, follow me, and I will make you become Fishers of men. Now what it doesn't say is follow me and maybe one day if you work hard enough you will become fishers of men. Maybe if you read all the right books and you learn all the right apologetics and you take all the right classes maybe then you will become fishers of men. No, what it says there is I, who's the I? Jesus, I will make you become fishers of men. So brothers and sisters, this morning, if you look at your life and you see it as relatively unfruitful, you maybe haven't proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Maybe you haven't seen anyone come to faith in your circle of friends. Brothers and sisters, know that if you follow Jesus, he will make you become fishers of men. And here's the thing, this is a decree of Jesus. So that means what? It will come to pass. It will come to pass you will in fact become fishers of men who catch both in great number and in small number those whom the lord would bring to redemption repentance faith and reconciliation to the god of the universe our king and our savior jesus christ you will accomplish that not because you are good not because you have anything of value to bring before the lord but because he has spoken it to be so And so, brothers and sisters, that is the hope of Sojourn Montrose. That is why we gather, we gather together in order that the glorious good news of the gospel of the kingdom, that kingdom that Jesus came proclaiming and then fulfilled in his life, death, burial, and resurrection would be known in such a way that it might be effective in saving any who would come and confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is why we exist. That is why we are here. That is why the Lord has brought us into his kingdom in order that that ministry of reconciliation that Jesus came proclaiming might be proclaimed now through his people. Let's pray.